Our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 8, verse 1 through verses 9, verse 17. So a lengthy passage. Um, before we begin our reading, Pastor Jeff and I uh, talked about clarifying a couple things that might be confusing. Uh, so the first is you're going to see a number of references to timeline uh, through the time they're on the ark. Going back to the prior chapter of Genesis, we see that Noah entered the ark in the 600th year of his life in the second month. And in this chapter, we'll see that he exited the ark in the 601st year of his life in the second month. So he was on the ark for a year. And, uh, and when the ark comes to rest on the mountains of Ararat, that's only about halfway through that time period. And when Noah is sending out the birds to see how dry the land is, that's only about three quarters of the way through that year. Uh, so that kind of gives you an idea of some of the timeline. And the second thing is, you're going to see today that when Noah exits the ark, it says he sacrifices some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird. And that may be disturbing to you if you have the nursery um, rhyme idea that there's just a pair of every animal on the ark. But in fact, if you go to Genesis chapter 7, verses 2 and 3, where God instructs Noah what to do, he says, take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, one pair of the animals that are not clean, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens. So in fact, there's 14 of many of the animals. Okay, Genesis chapter 8, starting with verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated, and in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her feet, and she returned to him to the ark. For the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth a dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth a dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. And then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with them. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. 
while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. Then God just said to Noah and his, and his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living thing that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. And remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. That is a full passage, a long passage, which means we won't be going verse by verse today. We'd be here till the Super Bowl if we did that. Uh, but we will be taking a kind of high flyover of this passage as we wrap up um, the story of Noah's life. Well, we've been looking, as you hear the story, the life of Noah these past few weeks as part of our larger um, Genesis Foundation series, which actually, uh, in a few weeks, we will finish through chapter 11 and, and go on to something else, then come back in the near future back to chapter 12. Um, but we began a few weeks back in the life of Noah. As one of our elders, uh, David Burnham, preached about this increasing time of evil on the earth, a time when God said this in Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You can't say it more all-encompassing than that, can you? Only evil continually, all the time. The earth had become incredibly violent, and God was not about to let the cancer of sin destroy his planet or humanity. And so in this settled opposition to sin, which is really what God's wrath is, it's not an outburst of a, uh, a toddler, it's a settled opposition to sin in love actually for humanity and his planet, <clears throat> he decides to enact a divine uh, decreation, you might say, by flooding the earth, saving one family. Remember, creation, God parted the waters so dry land could appear. Well, now God brought the waters back together in a decreation as the floods burst forth. 
and the rain and flood continued for 40 days while one family bobbed and rolled over the waves, imagine, and down into the troughs of the waves in a giant uh, boxy boat, really, is what they were in. And at the center of this story has been one bright spot, we called him last week, amongst a sea of evil humanity, a man who found favor with God, a man who's described as one who walked with God even, a man who is delivered with him and his family for his righteous faith. Remember Hebrews 11, the great hall of faith says this about him. By this, that's Noah, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah's the first man to be described as righteous, but it's a righteousness that's imputed to him. That's a big kind of strange theological word. We don't use that word. How often was the last time he used imputed? Maybe never. But it means it was credited to him. It was given to him. It was put in his bank account through his faith. And last week we looked at his, this, this faith that played out in absolute, resolute, faithful obedience as Noah obeyed in some incredible circumstances. To, he obeyed when it looked foolish in his life. He obeyed when it went against everything the surrounding culture was telling him. He was a man who showed us that the faithful and obedient, they take God at His word. Even if it means building a giant boat for a whole year, uh, a six-day journey from the sea. Think about that. The ridicule he probably faced. And because of his faithfulness, he received God's grace. He and his family are delivered. And we are here. You owe a debt of gratitude to Noah. We owe a debt of gratitude to him. This morning, we look at the deliverance of Noah and his family through the flood judgment now to establish a new order of fruitfulness and peace to preserve humanity and creation. Now, this morning is a picture of recreation. We have the decreation in the flood, the waters come over. But there's, I don't know if you caught it as, uh, as Chris was reading, but there's a lot of echoes of Genesis 1 in there. Have you heard that in our passage today? As now we'll see the floodwaters um, abate. We'll also see that how God promises to do the same for us, to deliver us to, with a covenant and a great sign in the sky we're going to look at today. So let's begin by looking at really the turning point. The hinge point of Noah's story is this. Our first thing today, God remembers and He delivers the remnant to a new life. Now, we left Noah and his family on the boat last week in our passage, but as you heard Chris say, they were actually on the boat for just over a year. From the time God shut the door to the time that Noah opens the top, over a year. As the floods came for 40 days, and there was another 100 days till the water started to abate, the text says, and another 150 days were to dry out. And and they were on the boat for this year. We really don't have any indication that God spoke to Noah during this time. One year of stuffy life in a floating zoo. I mean, imagine what was going on in there. Smell. 
the noises, the animals, the feeding, the poop, you know, all that stuff, it's real. The maintenance of caring for this floating zoo by these eight souls. And possibly then, no word from God at the same time. I wonder if he was tempted or some of his family members were tempted to think that God had forgotten them. How long are we going to drift? And the rain has stopped. How long are we going to drift? When will the water abate? And where have we flooded to? I mean, how far have we even floated from our home where we took off from? Made me think this week about how we respond to God when it seems that God has forgotten us. That was probably a long year for them. How we respond when deliverance seems slow or non-existent. How do you respond? From what we gleaned from the text, Noah seemed to, seemed to remain patient and obedient. You could say he was one who um, he walked with God as he floated with God and stayed faithful. But guess what we have here in this story? God did remember. God didn't forget. God remembered. It's a turning point of the story. He does deliver and remember this remnant and delivers them to new life. Look at verse 1 and 2. It's the total turning point of the story. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts, not just Noah, and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind over the earth and the water subsided, the fountains of the deep, the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained. God remembers. It's actually a phrase that's all over the Bible, that God remembers. And he remembers, we'll see in, in Genesis in a little bit, he remembers Abraham. He remembers Rachel and her barrenness, we'll see in Genesis. And as the psalmist said, he remembers his people. Here's a verse you can see from Psalm 74. Remember your congregation, the psalmist writes, which you've purchased of old which you've redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. And when God remembers, it's not as if he ever truly forgot. I think that's important for us to hear. You think God sent Noah out and he's like, oh yeah, what's that floating? Oh yeah, what's that floating down there? I forgot about the boat. No, it's not as if he ever forgets. What it means is when he remembers, I'm moving towards you to act. That's what it means. I'm coming close to you because I'm committed to you in your suffering, in your trial, and I will move. When it says God remembers, that's what it means. I'm coming towards you to move and act because I, know who, because I never forgot, actually. I never truly forgot. And here God remembers Noah. God's going to deliver this remnant by ending the flood. And this is how God always works in moments of catastrophic judgment uh, in the Bible. Or moments when most of the Israelites, you can think in the Old Testament, there's times when most of them walked away from God, turned their backs. He would always keep a remnant faithful, a small remnant. It means a smaller portion of the larger whole would stay faithful. And as he remembers this faithful remnant, here it's Noah, it's this one guy and his family with him, as he remembers this remnant on the ship, he acts. He moves towards them. And God brings the ark to rest. It's a theme in this passage. To rest, verse 4 says, on Mount Ararat. Rest, the ark rests finally. 
You remember Lamech back in Genesis, he was um, Noah's dad, and he named his son Noah, which actually is like the Hebrew word for rest. And he said about his son, he'll bring relief, a type of rest. And here we see the ark rest on this journey. And in a moment, we're going to see a relief and a rest between God and humanity when Noah makes a sacrifice that's pleasing to God. He's becoming the one who's bringing that rest. God brings a deliverance. He keeps his word and he protects and delivers his own to a new life. That's what we see happening here. Just like he will with us. Just like he will with you. He will remember you. He will act. He will deliver. And he will deliver the remnant, the church. That's the remnant. He will deliver us ultimately. But even us as individuals, each and every one of us in our own life, he did with Noah. So let's look at that life. Let's look at what he delivered Noah to. Uh, And in some ways, it's going to point us ultimately to what he's delivering us all to. Let's look at uh, restored creation, grateful worship, and a pleasing sacrifice here in this, now in this delivered new world. Creation's restored. The flood waters abate as Noah sends out the dove who at first, at first the dove cannot find a resting place. There's that theme. For her foot, verse 9 says. The the dove cannot find a resting place until finally the dove doesn't return again. As he did in the first creation, God again has recreated by pushing the waters away, by bringing out the dry land again as he did the first time. The year-long voyage has come to an end, and Noah removes the covering of the ark to more than likely uh, a partially cloudy, maybe a lot cloudy, but partially sunny sky. And in verses 15 and 19, we get this repetitive scene as they disembark from the ark of Noah coming off with his, his family and his animal, the animals, and it's repetitive, and it's, it's almost like God wants us to, um, to, to see it in slow motion because of all the repetition. Look at verse 15 and 16 with me. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife, and your son's wife, and, uh, and your sons and your son's wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. They may swarm on the earth, be fruitful, and multiply on the earth. It's as if God wants us just to pause here and to show us how important this moment is in Noah's life as he comes off the ark to this new world. I remember the old, how many of you remember the old show Twilight Zone? The original one now? Two of you? Okay, okay good. Okay, more of you guys. Like, my example is really not going to work then today. So, <laughs> um, if I remember it, I know some of you do. Um, the old Twilight Zone, one of the most popular episodes was an episode where um, there was a man who became the last human on earth. Do you remember that one? It's probably the one most people remember most vividly or the one with the crazy doll, but let's not get into that one. Um, where he, this guy realizes he's the last human on earth. Uh, he had gone, it's kind of a little um, silly, but he went into the, the um, bank vault at his lunch break, and when he closed the door, a nuclear holocaust had happened while he was in the vault bank. And he comes out, and I, I remember so vividly that episode, because he's just walking through the streets, like, 
this is not the world I remember. There's no one here. There's no one here. And he had survived the nuclear holocaust. And he goes to the library, and he's a lover of books, and he goes and he finally finds this library. Oh, the books I've got, you know, they're all for me. They're all mine, you know. Well, here we're meant to see with Noah that they are not the last people on earth. They're not the last people on earth, but they're the first again. They're the first again of what God's going to do on the earth. They're not the last. They're the first again. Like a new Adam, we're meant to see, coming off the ark with his family to this cleansed new world, with animals running around and birds flitting off into the air and the sun on their faces. And what's the first thing Noah thinks of? God. He thinks of God. He gratefully worships by setting up an altar and sacrificing. Look at 20 and 21 with me. Then... Noah built an altar to the Lord, and he took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I'll never curse the ground because of man, and the attention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I've done. What's going on here? Noah is realizing we have just survived a nuclear holocaust. We have just survived, and God has brought us through. Noah is realizing that redemption and restoration is possible with God. I mean, I don't think there's anybody in humanity that's ever had that, that vivid of a moment of realizing that. Think about it. When you walk off that ark after a year, and it's cleansed earth, and you're the, you're the only ones there. He realized redemption and restoration is possible. We've been delivered we have been delivered. I like how Alan Ross, what he says about this. He says, in this moment of Noah sacrificing to God, in a word, God restored human dependence on him by making people aware of their impotence. By his sacrifice, Noah expressed his submission to the gracious government of God in his life and in his world. By it, he confessed the evil in himself and in his fellows, which had brought ruin upon the world. And by it, he acknowledged the wonder and wisdom of God in redeeming and restoring life. In other words, until you see your absolute, deep, and desperate need of a Savior, and that you are absolutely impotent without him, and you need to deliver and fall down in all-out submission to God and by faith accept the sweet-smelling aroma of the sacrifice of Christ, not a bird, you can't have restored new life. You just can't. Nora proclaims, my God, you're starting over with us. We need you. You've, you have brought us through. There is no other way. You've redeemed us. You've restored us your new worshiping community. And we now, as we give this sacrifice, we will live now for the life to come. All my life is yours, basically, is what Noah's saying in this act. All I am is yours, God. Is this the posture of your life with God? Is this the posture of your heart with God? Would those who know you know that you submit to a higher authority than yourself? 
with those who know you say, oh, she is living now, I can tell, for something else, a life to come. And with your life, do you see it as a life to offer as a sweet-smelling sacrifice to the one who has saved you? Romans 12 appeals to us for that. As Paul said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Noah had just experienced the mercies of God. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. How do you respond to God? Well, we see how God responds to humanity. How does he do it? Absolute grace. He responds with grace. Even though evil will continue on earth, and in fact, strange, they get off the ark, what does God say? The next thing I'm going to talk to you about is murder Noah. It's kind of strange. But here he responds, I will never do again what I just did with water. I won't do that again with water. It's so gracious. And it's to all, it's to all the humans, animals. And he says in this, these great verses, life will go on. The harvest will continue, he says, and the seasons and the sun and the moon will go on. Life will go on under my care, Noah, as it is today. So he says to Noah, because it will go on, here's your job. So let's look at his commissioning. God commissions the family to care for creation and humanity. He commissions this family to care. That's what we get here in chapter 9. We get a commission for humanity to take care of the earth because God loves it, because he made it. But the problem is, and the reason we're going to see the covenant in a moment, is because we don't do a very good job of that. We just don't. Reminiscent of Genesis chapter 1, care for this garden I'm putting you in, Adam. Take care of it. Cultivate it. Remember that word. See it come to fruition. It's really interesting here. In chapter 9, God makes a covenant with all of creation. All of creation. He says, I won't curse the ground in chapter 8 because of man, but then in chapter 9, the covenant is with all things. All things. It's the only place in the Bible he does that. And if that, it's the only place sometimes, that means it's usually pretty important. A covenant is always an agreement between two parties. Two parties. The covenants were all, it's all over the Bible, and covenants were used by others in the ancient world, kings with their people. And, but in the Bible, it's always about a saving relationship. The covenant always points to a saving relationship with God and his people. And in this chapter, God says, 9, through the covenant, I will save not only humanity, but the whole world and creation. We think so often in salvation terms in just individual. Me and Jesus, you and Jesus, the church and Jesus. But here we get these words about the whole world and creation. This covenant, not because the animals have sinned and they need redeeming, or the mountains have sinned and they need saving, but because of your sin, Noah, because we don't do a great job of taking care of the stuff of earth. And I know how you will fail as gardeners because the first Adam did. God covenants with all the world. You know, how our sin hurts the world, it's kind of a 
It's kind of a complex topic. I mean, on the one hand, we have an understanding that Christians should, we should care about the environment. We should. Now, I'm not talking about what just popped into your head when I said that, those that care for the environment. I'm not talking about the kind of anti-human, kind of ideological, politicized version. I'm not talking about that. But just ask any farmer what happens when you uh, exploit a field and never let it rest. You have to ask them because I have no idea, actually. But I know it's not a good thing. I know it's not good. So you have to actually really ask a farmer. I don't know. When you selfishly pillage something without replenishing it, it's not good. We have a commission here from God to not only fill the planet with people, but care for it as we live in it. And what that looks like is going to be different in our lives and the extent we're able to care for the planet. Some of us are farmers, some aren't. And, but, but we have to be mindful of that at least. But even more complex is the fact that Romans 8, it's really strange. It talks about creation groaning and creation itself waiting for redemption under the weight of our sin. Like somehow creation is groaning, even though it's not personal like we're persons, and waiting for redemption. You see, the Christian doesn't take care of the planet just because it's pragmatic, which that's what the political environmentalists, the secular world, that's the only thing they have to go on. They take care of it because it's, it's, it's pragmatic. I mean, if this earth goes, that's our only ark, right? <laughs> Where are we going to be? We have so many more resources to, to pull upon. That's how the secular world does it. You take care of it because if we go, it goes, we go. But the Christian is called to care for others and the planet just because God made it. God made it. It's his. And he covenanted, as we see here, with the whole thing, not just people. We actually have the best reason to care. And the one that keeps us actually from becoming anti-human. Like you hear, like, like we're the blight on the planet. You've heard that. Like population control. It's a lie. It's a lie. Don't believe it. We actually have the best reason to care for the planet. We know the maker. And we know he's covenanted with us to care for it. So we'll talk about the covenant more in our final point, but here he gives the commission before the covenant. It sort of seems like out of order, but that's the way God chose to do it. The commission first. Our care, or our call to creation, creation care, excuse me, and preserving life. Let's just talk about it for a couple minutes. Well, as God provided food for Adam and Eve, do you remember, in the garden? There's a parallel here in the recreation, but it's different. Not just the vegetation. Now God opens up the animal world, and the relationship has changed. Remember the fear, the dread you heard that was read about. God opens up the animal world to be a regular part of their diet. Now, it's possible they were already eating animals on the boat. It's possible. This doesn't necessarily mean it was the very first time somebody had tasted beef, you know, like, oh, no, that's, you know, I mean, and you got to think, what, what were they eating on the ark for a year? I mean, vegetation might run out, you know, it's possible, but at the very least, what we have here from God is a, an encouragement to partake of it more, and maybe the first time. I doubt Noah pulled out his rifle right there and then as they all scattered from the ark, go, you know, um, but he probably got a Traeger, I'm guessing. I'm sure that would have been like first on his list to make sure that he could taste the beef. But seriously, though, as God um, talks about the animals, he, what he says to Noah is, 
even in our consumption of the animals, which he says is good for you to do. Even in our consumption, though, God says, you're not to consume them as they consume each other. With their pulsing lifeblood still in them, like take it as it's living. It's a way to respect not only the life of an animal, but the giver of that life, God who gave that animal life for you to eat. It's the blood, in the Bible, excuse me, blood is talked about as really life. Like life is in the blood. That's why Jesus' sacrifice of his blood is so important. And so to disregard life, whether animal or human, it's an affront to the giver of life. But to disregard human life is even more serious to God as we see here. Whether an animal, it's strange, but he says whether an animal sheds human blood or another human does, God takes the taking of a life, a human life, of absolute, utter importance and seriousness. And he will hold the person or the animal accountable if he saw that in the text. I don't know how he will do that. I don't know what that means, how he's going to hold an animal accountable for taking another human's life, but that seems to be what the text says. God takes murder seriously. And I went back and forth on how to handle this text on murder today in our limited time, and there's variations as you think even in the judicial system of life and the taking of a life. I went back and forth on how to handle this, chapter 9, verse 6. The verse has been used by both those, and the verse says, I, might, I should probably repeat it for you, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for God may man in his own image. Um, the verse has been used by those who both believe in capital punishment and the same verse has been used to make a case for those who don't believe in capital punishment. And I don't think from this verse necessarily alone um, you can make a sealed and shut case. We need the context of the rest of the Bible, which you don't have time to do today. But I do think that God is saying that human life is so precious as being made in God's image, that when you take a human life, you are killing the thing that is most like God. The thing that is most like God that He has made. And He's put on His earth to image Him. And God is the author of life. And He's the, the giver of the life-pulsing blood. So you do not have the right, you and I, to willfully take someone's life. And because God loves humanity so much. I think it's because he loves humanity so much. It's my conviction, my own personal conviction and reading of Scripture that there is permission with strict guidelines for those in authority at times for it to require from you what you took. Now, I'm not trying to persuade you of capital punishment today. And as I said, law is complex and it's different applying capital punishment in a urban which we would be compared even urban here to what an agrarian rural village would be like. It's different. And there are abuses that have taken place and racial disparities that have been clearly documented with the death penalty. I'm not trying to persuade you of capital punishment today. But at the very least, life is important and matters. And if God values life enough to say, I require something for it, like this, we better take it seriously and take life seriously 
and be a people that would be described as like whole life pro-life. Whole life pro-life. From the womb to the, the first conception in the womb to natural death. That's the kind of people we got to be. And this is the groundwork, this verse here and this interaction with Noah, really for all of justice in the world and our Western even concept of justice. It just comes from this. It's, you, can't get the, you can't get it without this. You just be pragmatic again. Uh, you know, th- th- this is what God is saying. Take life seriously. And that means then, every human being, no how smart, stupid, pretty, ugly, rich, poor, endearing, or obnoxious is so valuable, I will hold you accountable for what you do with them. That's a high calling. And I'm so glad God didn't stop here with Noah because he just gave the commission without the covenant. I mean, God knows we won't always keep our commission. We don't care for the earth well. We sometimes mistreat it and humanity as well but he covenants with us. So let's close by looking at this. God covenants with all of creation. Let's revisit it for a minute. And so, God makes a covenant. A new life of grace for Noah and his family here. And a sign of the covenant, a rainbow in the clouds. Rainbow in the sky. Look at verse 12 and 13 with me of chapter 9. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that's with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. That's all there again, the earth. All signs in the Bible, whether the rainbow, circumcision, baptism, the Lord's Supper, all signs in the Bible are meant to be pictures of salvation. That's why they're there. They get our senses involved and all of us, our whole self involved in a picture of salvation, of God putting you in a right relationship with himself. That's what those signs are for. And so here we've got to look for a moment in light of knowing that, that all signs are a sign of salvation at the rainbow in the clouds to understand what's going on here. So let's look at it. A bow in the clouds. Rainbows always come with a storm and clouds. Always. Have you ever seen a rainbow in the sky without clouds in the sky? Never. It's actually one of the things I love about uh, Oregon is just the, the springtime. I, my, one of my favorite times is when it's raining and sunny at the same time or as it was snowing and sunny the other day. I mean, that was kind of weird. Rainy and sunny at the same time, that that can happen. Because uh, then you get rainbows, and it's just beautiful, and the sun and the rain, everything just looks different than a gray rain. Rainbows always come with clouds and storms. You never have one without the other. And I think, in the context of this massive judgment, that was a storm that came from clouds, a judgment for sin that just took place in the cloudy storm they just came through, that the rainbow in a cloudy sky, which is how the text says it, is to point us and to show us something about ourselves even, about you and I. The stormy sky, the rainbow, the bow in the clouds. 
the flood is a salvation project as we think about it. I mean, it was a failure. If it was the salvation project, it's like, I'm saving you. They get off the boat. What's the first thing he says? Let's talk about murder now, Noah. I mean, really? Like, that's, that's your saving God? Like, save you, and then we're talking about murder. And as Noah got off the boat, there would have still been clouds in the sky. Maybe a lot of clouds. When he leaves the ark, as Noah and the family disembark from their voyage, and the animals do as well, and all the cargo, something else came with them too. Do you know what it was? The fact that God has to talk about murder tells us they carried their sinful nature with them too. That was with them. They brought that out of the ark as well. Their sinful nature. And the rainbow in the clouds, I think, is still there to show us as he just came through that judgment is that the context, the contrast of the two, the flood, the storm, the clouds, the rainbow is to say, sin is still here, Noah. You've brought it with you. It's come off the ark with you. Let's talk about life, taking a life. And before the rainbow can actually mean anything to Noah, and before it can actually mean anything to you, you have to see that the biggest problem of your own life was the biggest problem of Noah's life and the biggest problem of the world that caused judgment. It's the own clouds of your own sin, your heart. You have to see the rainbow contrasted against the storm they just came through. The human heart. It's the biggest problem in your life. The biggest problem in your marriage is actually your own sinful heart or in your relationships. And that he will hold us accountable, that he is just. But the rainbow comes after the storm. And it shows us God's grace, his absolute grace. His wrath has gone away. Noah, the storm's over. The clouds are parting. Look at the sign in the sky. A fresh start was here for Noah. But you know, you saw it in the text. We, I mean, some versions might even say rainbow, but it doesn't say rainbow. It says bow. Now you look at the, the text, it just says, my bow will be in the clouds. My bow is the sign in the sky. It doesn't say rainbow. Maybe like your children's Bible. Every time this word is used in the Bible, do you know how it's used? A war bow. You pull the string on and release. A war bow. It's used of a bow that you would kill with when he says the bow is in the sky. Every time. It doesn't say rainbow, it says bow. I love what Meredith Klein said about this. He said, my bow translates the Hebrew word keseth, the usual meaning of which is the weapon. Thus, the recurring rainbow, the sign is the rainbow, even though the word's bow, the recurring rainbow imposed on the retreating storm by the shining again of the sun is God's battle bow laid aside. A token of grace staying the lightning shafts of wrath. God is saying with the sign in the sky, I am laying my woe, war bow aside. I'm setting aside my wrath. Well, how can this be? How can this be? The Bible talks of God in other places, being a God of wrath, a, a divine warrior even with his fiery bow speaks of. 
and the, the end of the Bible, Revelation speaks of Jesus coming with fire. How can he put it away then? Well, the passage gives us some hint. Noah begins the sacrificial system, so to speak, not quite like the Israelites' system, but he sacrifices and there's now the killing of animals for food. And so there's a hint there that it takes sacrifice. It takes sacrifice. I can only put my bow away through sacrifice. I I, I won't stop being just. I have to, God says. Sin must be punished. But do you notice something? When you look at the rainbow, when you look at God's warrior bow in the sky, which way is it facing? Up. It's facing up. Not at us. Not facing at you. Like we tend to think of God, that he's just shooting us with bows every day. You know, when something happens, just firing away at us. Another bow, another bow, another bow right at you. It's facing up. It's facing away from the earth. Point it up at someone else. Spurgeon was probably the one that popularized this. I don't know if he was the first one to talk about the bow this way, but here's what he said. The rainbow yet again is a token that vengeance itself has become on our side. You see, it's an unbroken bow. He didn't snap it across his knee. It's a bow still. Vengeance is there. Justice is there. But which way is it pointed? It's turned upward. Not to shoot arrows down on us, but for us. If we have faith enough to string it, to make it our glorious bow, to draw it with all our might, to send our prayers, our praises, our desires up to the bright throne of God. And where did, where did God turn his bow of wrath so that justice and mercy, grace could coexist? Where a storm cloud and a rainbow actually came together at the same time. It's not a bow in the sky, it's Jesus on the cross. It's Jesus, a savior on the cross. Until you can see that the dark storm is in your own heart, you'll never see the bow pointed at Christ on the cross for you. He took on the flood in that moment of God's wrath. Noah's sin, my sin, your sin was being punished as the bow was unleashed into the very heart of God for you. Deliverance always comes through a storm, as it did on the cross. Some of you, I know, are in the middle of a storm. Some of you feel like you're hanging like on the outside of the ark, right? And the, the waves are like lapping at your feet as you're dangling there. I know that. I, I feel like that right now, actually. Look up through the clouds. Look up through the storm. Look up to the bow of God's grace by looking at Jesus on the cross. The stormy trials are there to make you look away from the things that you think are your ark, whether, you know, whatever those are, your job, your accomplishments, your health, your finances, your reputation. You know what those things are? They're like little dinghies. <laughs> They're like little dinghies. You've got one little paddle or two spoons maybe on the side. 
Stormy trials are there to make you look up away from those things and look to the only true deliverer, the only true ark, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Look up through the clouds. God is saying, look away from yourself up to me with the bow in the sky. I wish we could go out there today and there'd be a rainbow too. It was sunny. We can't plan that. It would be wonderful. But that's what God is saying. Look to the only place where true grace can be found. It's the sign of the covenant. Look to Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we look to you today. We look to you for all our needs, all our cares, all our concerns, all our trials. We look away from the things that we think are going to support us in the floodwaters of life that turn out to be little dinghies. We look to the sign, the true sign, the true Savior, Jesus Christ. May we be pointed there. May we find hope there. May we find resurrection life there. May we find deliverance there in our own storms and trials. And may we live with a boldness for you, Christ, because of that. Sharing that same message and that same sign with the world. It's in Christ's name we pray.